You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See there is any offense to way in me, and leave me into everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your word. I thank you for time of, of where we've been able to already worship you, um, to connect with you in that way. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to... Uh, connect with you again um, through the teaching of the scriptures, which you know is active and, and living. We know it's just as powerful as if you were standing here speaking it um, here in the flesh. And so I do pray that you would open up our imaginations, open up our minds, that you'd help us to focus, to receive exactly what it is that you have for us today. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I recently heard a pastor tell a story about Beethoven, and it's something I've been thinking about ever since I heard it. I grew up you know, going to music class like you all did in school. So I've heard of Beethoven and I've known that he's considered one of, if not the greatest musicians of all time. But what I learned this week that I had not known before is that actually Beethoven wrote all of his best music whenever he was 45 years old or older after he had already gone deaf. So I want you to think about that, right? Uh, Beethoven, before he had gone deaf, he had was considered a good composer, but what music critics tell us is that if you took his music and you put it next to the other musicians' music of that day, it basically looked like a carbon copy. There was nothing really that special or unique about it. But then he goes deaf, and think about this, as the noise from the outside world begin to grow quiet, a new and better music began to arise in his own heart and his imagination that eventually spilled over into the world and changed the music industry forever. And I was reading an article about Beethoven, his transformation uh, this week. And here's what Arthur Brooks says, and I'll, I'll quote him here. He says this, Beethoven's deafness freed him as a composer because he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ear. Think about that again. Beethoven's deafness freed him as a composer because he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ear. In other words, it wasn't until... Beethoven was forced to block out the noise in the world that he was able to produce these beautiful masterpieces that we know him for today. And as I thought about that this week, I thought about you and me and how the same can be true for us in that if we want to be authors of beauty and life rather than brokenness and destruction, if we want to be a people who truly reach our full God-given potential, if we want uh, to, to leave this world better than we found it, we have to learn how to block out the noise of the world or the voices in our own head. And we have to learn to, to turn down the soundtrack of society and turn up the voice of God, the voice we know that always, always sounds like love and leads us into life. You know, the truth is today, this might be the most profound thing that I will say, and something I should say every single week, the truth is, according to the scripture, the creator of the universe is always actively loving you. The triune God who created you is always pouring out his love on you. The problem is we oftentimes, because we live such busy and scattered lives, because of the trauma we've experienced or the voices in our head, we have a hard time receiving that love or seeing how he is working in our lives. 
And because of that, because we often miss the ways God is just trying to love us, I want to end our series today by looking at a practice that, that I have learned that is designed for the sole purpose of helping us grow in our God awareness. It's a practice that actually is designed to help us grow in the ability to receive the love that God is pouring out on us in the everyday stuff of life. And to do that, I want you to look back with me at Psalm 139, which uh, is a song. That's what the Psalms is, by the way. Psalms is a group of songs. And so in Psalm 139, we're going to read the lyrics from this brilliant composer by the name of David. And here's what I want you to see in here, if you're taking notes, there's six things uh, that David is going to show us about his relationship with God. Six things that are true for him and can also be true for us as well. And I'll show you how to experience that today. But the first thing I want you to note, if you have your Bible, notice how present David is to God's presence. It, it, look back with me, Psalm 139, verse 5. He says, You hem me in behind... And before, and lay your hand upon me. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Verse 8, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, or your translation may say in Shia, which means the land of the dead, you are there. And so notice for David, he knows God in such a way that he says, God, your presence is inescapable. No matter what's going on in my life, no matter where I travel to, whether I'm up really high on the mountain or I'm down in the valley of the shadow of death, I know with certainty that, God, you are with me. It's confidence. Secondly, not only is he present to the presence of God, but he also feels deeply known by God. In verses 1 through 4, look in your Bible. He says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, he says, you, Lord, know it completely. There's a book I've been reading by uh, David Brooks called How to Know a Person. And he lays out in there that every single human being wants to be known. You want to be seen. That is one of your deepest desires. And David says, man, the Lord knows me. He has searched me and knows me. As I, as I thought about that idea of searching and, and knowing, I started thinking today about um, this TV show that I've been really into called The Bear. Anybody else in here a fan of The Bear? Okay, there's, there's, uh, there's like seven or eight hands in the first service, a couple here. Sean knows a big fan. Shout out to, uh, where's Daniel? Like Daniel McDonald's in here. He's not in here, but shout out to him. He's never watched the show, but he's the one that told me I should watch it. And so I really, really enjoyed it. And, and basically, it's this incredible drama about a highly dysfunctional group of family and friends who are trying to run this kind of low-end restaurant in Chicago. Uh, the main character is Carmi, you see right there in the middle, and he was uh, the top chef in the top restaurant in New York City, actually in the world, but his brother got into drug addiction, committed suicide, and his wheel left this kind of just podunk restaurant with him uh, in Chicago. And so Carmi leaves New York, comes back, trying to be loyal to his family to run this business. And one of the guys he runs it with is his cousin, Richie. Uh, who is just volatile and kind of hates life and he's mad at everybody. He's going through a divorce. He just doesn't want to be at the restaurant. And so Carmi eventually sends him to this high-end restaurant in Chicago to go and work there for a week to learn kind of, you know, I guess good manners. And so uh, Richie goes there and at first the job is beneath him. He's just washing forks all day long. He's like, this is ridiculous. Why does it matter if there's a streak on the fork or not? And eventually his boss pulls him aside and he helps him to see how this restaurant is able to change the lives of people who come into the restaurant to eat their food. And he says, Richie, I don't know if you realize this, but we have a waiting list that is 5,000 people long. 
And if someone is on this waiting list, I said, literally, we have a full-time staff member that researches that person who studies them intently. We get on their social media websites. We make phone calls. We talk to people who may know them. That way, if we learn them well enough, we know when by the time they come into our restaurant, we can care for them and love them in meaningful ways. And as I thought about that this week, I thought, man, like that's what David is getting at here. That's why he's so excited. He says, man, that, that, that God, you have searched me. You've researched me. Like you've been watching me. You've been studying me. He says, God, I, you know everything about me. You know my desires. You know my dreams. You know my struggles and my fears, my longings and frustrations. You know what food I like. Jesus said at one point, he knows the numbers of hairs on our head. He, he knows what keeps us awake at night. Like, like God, David says, I know that God knows me inside and out better than I even know myself. So I'm not hidden from his sight. He sees me. He's researched me. And then David goes on and he says, not only that, if that's not good enough news, he says, not only does God know me, but he also holds me. In other words, he keeps me safe and secure. In verse 9, look in your Bible. He says, even if I rise on the wings of dawn and I settle on the far side sea, verse 10, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. You know, because I am such a loving parent, I will sometimes make big sacrifices for my kids, like taking them to Ultimate Air in Jonesboro. And it's an incredible place. Angie, is Angie here? Scott's here. Angie's not here. Okay, you can pass this on to her. No shade to Ultimate Air. Angie manages Ultimate Air, and it's fantastic. It's incredible, but it's a nightmare for people like me who can be a little bit of a germaphobe. Because when you go into Ultimate Air, there are a bunch of hundreds of kids. I think 300 kids just like jumping around and it's just like you just see these little germs like, you know, bouncing off the trampoline with them, right? It's like everywhere you go, like, don't put your hands in your mouth, kids. Uh, go wash your hands, right? All that sort of thing. And so um, anyways, at Ultimate Air, there's just like this tightrope, right, uh, that you can walk. You may know what I'm talking about. Anybody here been to Ultimate Air? Okay. Uh, yeah, and you get on this tightrope and you can walk it. And so my daughter went across it. My middle child went across it. And then my youngest, Moses, decided... He wanted to give it a shot, but here's the thing. The only way he would try it is if I was holding his hand. If I was not there beside him, if I pulled away, like, son, you're fine. Like, it's only like a couple of, like, you're fine. You don't need me. No, he, he thought, no, I'm not doing this unless you're there beside me holding my hand. Because if I was holding his hand, he knew that no matter what happened, he was going to be okay. And that's what David is getting at right here in verse 10. David says, this is what my relationship with God is like. I know that no matter how unstable the world feels around me, that God is, God is there and he is guiding me and he is making sure that I am going to be on track and that if I fall, he will actually be there to support me. And, and, and so what David is ultimately saying here is this. He's, he's saying, look, in a world that is racked with anxiety, where people are often paralyzed by their fears, he says, I'm able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. I'm able to continue to move forward in confidence and trust that this world is a perfectly safe place to live because God is holding me in his hand. God is actively there involved in every single detail of your life. And this actually moves us into the next point, which is the reality that David knows that he has been fearfully and wonderfully created by God. In verse 13 and verse 16, he says this, Look in your Bible. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them even came into being. There's this really cool picture we have at our house. It's a framed picture of our daughter, actually her ultrasound, uh, whenever she was still in Megan's stomach. And, and what's cool about this, this picture is it literally looks like, and some of you have seen this, like there is a hand in the womb forming her. It's a crazy picture. And on this picture, we have this verse, Psalm 139.13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And listen, I'm not necessarily saying like that was the physical, like a literal hand of God. But the Bible says in some ways, like, yes, that was the literal hand of God. Like, if you are here, and you are here, congratulations, you're not an accident. Do you realize that? That great care has gone into your creation. David says, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God. He has wired me the way that he has wired me for a reason. And even that reason, he says, has been predetermined. He says, all of my days have been ordained by God. So God's not just involved in my past. He's also involved in my present. And so the future's bright. David's not waiting for the other shoe to fall. He's like, I know that God is involved in every aspect of my life. I am here for a reason. David then goes on and look at this. He doesn't stop there. The fifth thing he points out is he says that he's not just convinced that God is with him and that God knows him and that God holds him and that God created him, but he's also convinced that God loves him. Listen to what he says. And I want you to imagine if I said this, and this is the first time you were ever hearing this out loud, how precious, verse 13, God, are your thoughts about me. How vast the sum of them were I to count them, they would be, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. Like if you overheard me say that, what would you think about me? If I was like, how precious, God, are your thoughts about me? You have more precious thoughts about me, God. You'd be like, no, Jared, it should be the other way around. You're supposed to have precious thoughts about God, not God about you. But David says, no, 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 I know God in such a way that he actually loves me more than you even love your own children. He has precious thoughts about me, even on my worst day. God values me, he enjoys me, he loves me. And then because of all of this, look at how David is able to be. He's able to just be himself before God. I want to ask you, do you feel like you can be yourself before God? Look at the way David talks to God in verse 19 through verse 22. He says, if only you, God, like all this like beautiful psalm, right? Verses 1 through 18, it's amazing. It's all God-centered. It's as it should be. But then in verse 19, he says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked, Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred in my heart for them. I count them as my enemies. It's like David's doing pretty good up until that point. I, I wondered how many prayers, uh, if, if David had a texting relationship with God, how many times God would respond back to David with the, like the, 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 the palm and the face emoji. You know, it's like you're doing so good, and then all of a sudden you just like took this sharp turn where you're like, I hate these people with as much hatred as I could possibly hate, and I hope they all die. You know, I was reading Psalm 41 uh, today, my wife was as well, we were talking about this, where David talks uh, in Psalm 41 about how one of his best friends had betrayed him, and then he says, have mercy on me, O Lord. And you think he would say like, so that I could forgive him. 
and just be kind to my enemies. He says, have mercy on me, Lord, so that I may repay him for what he's done to me. It's like, so close, David, so close. Why is that in the Bible? Because obviously when you get to Jesus, Jesus says, love your enemies. And then he died for his enemies. And while he was dying for his enemies, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Why is this in the Bible? Well, it's not because God wants you to know it's okay to hate people. But he wants to show you how to pray with integrity. He wants you to realize that prayer, as we've said before, you've got to get this, is not a place to be good. It's a place to be real. It's a place to be open and honest. Guys, God already knows what's in there. So just learn to pray with the filter off. Stop trying to perform and start praying. So many of us have made prayers about performance. Like we, we think that if we can say, we're like the, the Pharisees, right? If we can just pray this really beautiful, rich prayer with thou arts and use King James language and all that, that God's going to be like, that's really, really good. I'm going to answer that prayer because of the language you're able to use. Fantastic. Like, like, no, like God wants a friendship with you, a relationship with you. And because David had that with God, he could be completely honest about what was going on in his heart. And I want you to think about how different this is today than where many of us are. I mean, what happens, let's, let's be honest, all of us in this room have been hurt by somebody. We've all been hurt. We've all been sinned against. We've all been disappointed. And typically in our culture, what is the knee-jerk reaction when someone hurts us? Hurt them back. Gossip. And if you're really spiritual, by the way, how do we do gossip? We frame it as a prayer request. Hey, we need to pray for our brother, all right? I'm just going to tell you this right now, just because I love him. I saw him the other day, da, 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 but hey, pray for that, would you? Or here's what we do in our culture. We just cancel people. I don't need you. Forget you. I'm better off without you. And I'm not going to talk to you about anything you just done. I'm just going to stop responding to your text. I'm going to cold shoulder you. I'm going to avoid you. And I see you at Walmart going down this aisle, woo, turn around and go the other aisle. I mean, I don't do that. Other people do that. That's not what we see with David. David is hurt, and who does he go to? God. Because that's what you do whenever you walk intimately intimately with the creator of the universe. It's like a friendship. Now, with all that being said, let me just ask you this. I know I'm in front of a crowd, but I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. Let me just ask you this. Is what I just said about David, is this how you would define your own relationship with God? Like when you look at how David related to God, would you say you know God in that way? Are you present to his presence in the everyday stuff of life? I know no matter where I am, God, you're with me. Do you feel like right now God sees you and that he knows you better than you even know yourself? Do you feel like God holds you, that no matter what happens tomorrow, you're going to be just fine? Or are you kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall? Do you feel like you have a purpose, that your future is secure, that God loves you, and that his thoughts towards you are precious? And can you therefore be honest with him about what's going on inside of your heart? The reason I ask that, because from my experience, guys, like, most of us, if we're being honest, our relationship looks almost completely opposite to that. Rather than feeling like God is close, we feel like God is distant. 
rather than feeling like God knows me, I feel like he's oblivious to me, or he's just distracted. He don't have time to pay attention to me. Rather than feeling safe and secure, we're anxious and afraid. Rather than feeling like we're here for a purpose, we feel like we're an accident because of some sort of, you know, like whoops from our biological parents. And therefore, we feel insecure. We're constantly envying other people who we think are better than us, and we compare ourselves to them. Or, or maybe we just drift through life aimlessly, jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, trying to find our identity in something or someone other than God. Rather than feeling loved by God, we feel condemned by Him on most days, and very like, like God's just disappointed in us. Like, you know, I really thought you'd be better by now. I told someone recently that I think for a lot of people in the religious South, it's like, we believe we enter into the Christian life through grace. For by grace I've been saved through faith, but it's almost like we think as soon as we get into that tub of grace that God pulls the drain, and he's like, you've got just a little bit of time before you can figure this out, before my grace runs out. And if you don't have your life together by then, I've just I got nothing else for you. That's where some of us feel right now. God, he, he knows, he must be so disappointed in me. Rather than being open and honest and having conversations about our desires, we just kind of keep our relationship with God on a surface level. We perform rather than pray. And listen, if that's where you are this morning, welcome to the club. This is a struggle for pretty much every Christian that I know. And the good news is today, Everybody in here can increasingly experience the Psalm 139 life. You can increasingly begin to experience this loving and empowering presence of a God who created you and loves you and has so much more for you than you could ever dream or imagine. And so the question is, how do we get there? How does this go from being raw, 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 Super Bowl Sunday sermon, like let's get all fired up to like, okay, how do I do this? How do I know God the way David knew God? I just got to stop sinning so much. Well, David was a pretty big sinner. If you ever committed adultery and ever murdered somebody, you're in good company with David. David's a pretty big sinner. Apparently, you don't have to make your life perfect. Like, well, what do I need to do to get there? Verse 23 and 24 was read earlier by Scott. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. I love that David just prayed this prayer where he says, I have nothing but hatred for these guys. God, is my heart off a little bit in that? I think it's an innocent question. Like He's like, I, I could be a little off in that. And so he says, search me investigate me. Some translations say, examine me. Show me where I'm off. Why? Because I want to be in step, God, with your Holy Spirit. I want to live in your presence because I know that when I'm walking in step with you, or I'm aware of how you're working and how you're moving, and I'm walking that direction, that you, he says here, will lead me into eternal life or what Jesus referred to as the abundant life. And so how do we get there? Well, the short answer is prayer. But more specifically, what has been known down throughout church history as the prayer of examine. And before I tell you what the prayer of examine is, let me tell you where this comes from. Because my guess is this is a fairly new concept for about 95 to 99% of you in here. And so the prayer of examine 
something I heard about back in 2016, but it's been around for a long time. It actually comes to us from St. Ignatius of Loyola. It's a good-looking guy, right? Um, and this guy's... How many of you have heard of St. Ignatius of Loyola? Oh, wow. Like three people. Guys, this is considered one of the greatest saints in church history. And here's what you need to know about his life. He was actually, before he was a saint, he was a wealthy, womanizing military officer who was climbing the ranks. He was going to kind of be the next big thing in the military. But he was wounded in battle whenever a cannonball struck and shattered his right leg and badly wounded his left leg. And what happened, as the story goes, is after having two agonizing surgeries with no anesthesia, he's laid up in bed for nine months, and he he begins to request books to read. Now, keep in mind, this is before the iPhone, right? This is before YouTube. It's before Netflix. He's like, I need something to do. And so he says, give me every book you have on being a knight, because that was his ambition. I want to be great. I want to be a knight. I want to be a warrior. But instead of getting books on nights, people brought in books on the life of Christ. And as he began to read about the life of Christ, his heart was radically transformed. So eventually he got better, and he said, I'm going to make a trek to Jerusalem. I believe God is calling me there. And so on the way to Jerusalem, he stops at a monastery where he engages in an all-night prayer vigil from his knees. He then calls for a priest and over the next three days confesses every single sin he can think of that he's ever committed. He then took all of his clothes, and he was a fairly wealthy man, all of his clothes from his former life, and he gave it to a beggar. And then he had someone make him what usually was used kind of like, I guess it was like sackcloth, uh, made him a little outfit that he wore from then on as 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 a way of identifying with the poor. He then took off towards Jerusalem the rest of the way with nothing more than some bread and a little bit of water. And there's so much about his life that is incredible. Probably the thing he's most known for is he came up with um, what's called the Jesuit order. It's had a profound impact uh, all across the world. But he also left us with this practice that is referred to as the prayer of examine. And simply put, here's a definition for the prayer of examine. It is a practice that has been designed for the purpose of helping us discover God in all things. The prayer of examine has been designed for the purpose of to discover God in all things. And here's the way this works. It works by helping you look back on your day to see where God was at work in your past so that you can become more aware of him in your present. John Mark Comer, and I agree with this statement, he says that hindsight right is 2020. You've all heard that before. And he said the same thing is true in your relationship with God. Most people can see God's activity in their life better by looking back in the past than they can in the present. So what the prayer of examine is going to help you do, if you guys will engage what I'm about to tell you, it's going to help you become more aware of how God was working in your past to help you again become more aware of him in your present. Jesuit writer James Martin says it this way, finding God in your past makes you more likely to look for and find God in the present. As you become more aware of where God was, you begin to notice him more where he is. Right? That's what we've all been talking about in this series. Gradually you realize that God is active in every moment of your day. Just like that song, right? Even if I don't feel that you're working, even if I don't see it, you're there all the time at work, every moment of the day. David Fleming talks about the exam in this way. And, and I know this is a little bit teachy, but I really think this is important. So try, try to focus, right? He says this. David Fleming says, um, The examine is a way of discerning the presence of God 
by reflecting on our daily experience. It is an indispensable tool to detect God's presence and discern his will. It shows us how to look back on our lives and sift through our memories to see the way that God has, in fact, been dealing with us. Here's one more. Stay with me. This is from our spiritual director, Jared Boyd, who I meet with regularly. He says this. The examine is a way of praying that grows us in our capacity to notice the everyday invitations of God in the ordinary life. It mean, It's meant to help us live our life with an awareness of the loving presence of God, which in return makes us more into people of love. And I, I really like this next line. The examine, therefore, is designed to make us better lovers. And this can only happen when we first become aware of the way that God loves us. I love that language. The prayer of examine helps us become better lovers by first becoming aware of how God is always loving us. My guess is, guys, most of us don't think of our relationship to God in this way. Most of us, at least if you grew up like me in the Baptist world, when you think of of God's presence, you think that the place that God is primarily at is in big worship services like this or in church camp experiences. And sure, he can be there in those, and it's great, and we love it, and it's exciting. But here's the thing. 99.9% of your life doesn't look like this. So what are you going to do with that version of God? He's going to feel distant. He's going to feel absent. And what the prayer of examine does is it brings the presence of God down into the realness and the dirt and the grime and the mundane and the ordinary stuff of your life in such a way that it can begin to transform you from the inside out. And so on a practical level, how do we do this? How do we practice the prayer of examine? Well, this takes anywhere between 5 to 10, maybe 15 minutes you can do it anytime throughout your day. I recommend doing it at the end of the day. That's why this is a sermon that's coming at the end of the series. So I try to do this while I'm in the shower or before I go to bed at night. And so there are six movements to the prayer of examine. I'll put this on the screen for you. And this is what my spiritual director has been working with me on over the last year and a half to go through. But if you want to practice this, here are six things. Be still, give thanks, reflect, pray, hope, surrender. It's a quick word on each. First off, be still. If I just stopped right now, and we didn't talk for like two or three minutes, how long do you think it would take you before you just felt super awkward and begin to fidget? Like, look around a little bit. Anybody text me lately? <laughs> you know, like, you know, like moving. So like, like, we're just frantic. We're moving so much. And it's not that God's not loving us. It's just like we're a moving target, right? Just sit still in the love of God for a moment. Become aware of his presence. And that doesn't have to be anything crazy. Like for me, sometimes I'll just say, come Holy Spirit or come Lord Jesus or God, I know you're here. Help me to be here with you. Be still. Secondly, give thanks. There's so much research out there about the power of gratitude. You know, when you give thanks, it literally changes your brain. For the better. That's why I think there's so many commands to give thanks to God. And so take a moment during the prayer of examine to look back on your life, to look back on your day specifically, and to say, God, are there any gifts that you have given me today that I can thank you for? You can do that right now. God, is there anything that you, any gifts you've given me this morning that I could thank you for? 
And if you'll pause and do that, I promise you, you will come up with something. Coffee. Thank you, God, for coffee. Thank you for the laughter of my children. Thank you that I got to see these people today. I don't know if I'll ever see them again. I get to see them again today. Thank you for this band that you've given, the musical instruments to, to sing. Thank you for new people I met. Thank you for the fact that I can stand on my two legs. I don't know if I'll be able to do that again. After today, I'm not sure what will happen. But I got them today. Thank you, Lord. Wow. I got out of bed again. Stop and just thank God for these things. And then reflect. Look back on your day. And here, this is big, guys. This is really big. Pay attention to your feelings from that day. Where was I anxious? What was I nervous about? Where was I excited? What was I drawn to? What was, on, what was consuming my thoughts? Was it social media? Was it this girl I've been pursuing? Was it this? What was it? And then take one or two of those things that crop up as you think about your, your day and just begin to pray, begin to talk to God about that thing. And to say, here's the way it works for me. Like, God, I was, I was really anxious in the first service, you know, about like, about preaching. And I don't know what that was about. Like, is there something you want to say to me about that? Just listen. Or, or, you know, God, I really found myself thinking, actually in the middle of my sermon, how I can't wait to go eat lunch. And I felt really drawn to just kind of watch some YouTube videos on, uh, I don't know, UFC or something like that. I don't know. Just random stuff. Right? Like, God, is there anything you want to talk to me about that? And listen, he may want to say something to you. He may say, like, yeah, here's something I want you to repent of. Here's something I want you to let go of. Or here's something I want you to step into. Or he may just say, oh, I love whenever you do that thing or whatever. He may want to help you realize, like, oh, yeah, I created you for that. The reason you like that is I want you to do more of that. Just begin to have that conversation with him. And then, fifth, begin to hope. This is where you begin to look forward kind of the next day. And you begin to say, you know what, God, I may have totally missed you today. But I'm looking forward in hope, and I know that tomorrow is a new day, and you are there waiting for me, and you will be there every step of the way, and every situation in my life, you're going to work together for good, even if I don't see how you're working. And then you surrender, and this is where transformation really takes place. This is where you just choose to relax in God's love before you go to bed. You trust, I don't have to be in control because, God, you are in control. And here, for me, I try to, every night before I go to bed, to just pray the prayer of serenity. And if you've ever been a part of AA or anything like that, you know what I'm talking about. Right as look and I say, okay, like, God, give me the peace to accept the things I cannot change. Give me the courage to change the things that I can. Give me the wisdom to know the difference between the two. Not my will be done, but your will. And you just surrender that to the Lord. And that's it. Like, guys, that's how you spend the day with Jesus. And as a recap... I'll put it on the screen for you where we've been is just this. Remember, if you want to spend a day with Jesus, here's how it works. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it does take some intentionality. Begin with rest. Remember, God's day does not start in the morning. It starts in the evening. That's purposeful. It says that he gives sleep to those whom he loves. Go to bed. Get some sleep and trust it's a gift from God. That while you do nothing, he's going to keep your whole life working together. Start each morning with some silence and solitude, even if it's just three to four or five minutes. Just start where you are. Go into your day with Jesus, looking for him in the nooks and crannies, the ordinary stuff of life and the interruptions, all these conversations you've been having. Do your work that God has given you to do, and then examine your day. With all that being said, 
I do not know anybody who is killing it in all these areas. I don't know if there's anybody in this room that would be like, I have mastered how to spend a day with Jesus. Um, this is a lifestyle that takes practice. And here's what I would submit to you. If you really get serious about this, you just better expect some warfare. Because I can promise you right now, if there is one thing that the enemy wants to do, it's to keep you from spending time with Jesus. He is perfectly fine. Let me say this, guys. I think this is for somebody in here because didn't say it in the first service. The devil is perfectly fine with you showing up at this church service every Sunday and reading your Bible daily and trying to pray and do all of those things for no other reason other than that's just the right thing to do. But what terrifies him is you actually begin to gauge your mind and your heart in a way that you begin to open yourself up and surrender to the love that God actually has pouring out for you through Jesus every second of every day. And that's what this is designed to do. This is not about performance. Forget all that. You don't have to do your own thing. Just find a way, guys, to abide in the vine, to spend time with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And here's the thing. If you will do that, you're going to have some highs. You will. But most days, you're not going to feel just like, this was an amazing experience. Like most days for me, I just, I walk away from my times with the Lord. I just feel peace. I feel calm. I feel centered. There's some days you're going to experience God's presence, and there's other days it's going to feel really dry and like nothing happened. And if that's where you are, don't get discouraged. I think most people, here's my guess, most people in the room today feel like they're pretty bad at the Christian life. That's my guess. There are some in here that I think feel like I'm nailing it, I'm amazing, I'm an amazing disciple of Jesus, and praise God for that. I don't think that's the majority of you. I think the majority of you feel like you're awful at the Christian life, as if it even depends on your performance rather than the performance of Christ. But I remember something that Chuck Yashwin said to me years ago. He was one of our pastors, and he's in Texas now. He said that someone came to him one time and literally said, I suck at the Christian life. You ever felt like that before? I suck at sharing the gospel. I suck at reading my Bible. I suck at praying. I suck at blah, 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 blah. And you know what Chuck said to them? This person, he looked right at him and he said, okay. Well, let me encourage you with this. Suck forward. Just keep sucking forward. Just keep putting one step in front of the other. Just keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep showing up here on a Sunday. Keep singing of it if you don't feel like it. Keep taking of communion. Keep sitting in silence, even if it feels like there's a thousand monkeys jumping up at the top of the tree and throwing bananas at you and all that kind of stuff. It's like, keep putting one foot in front of the other and know that if you will do that, listen, Jesus will meet you in that space and he will love you. And I promise you, not overnight, but over time, he will take you on a journey that is, that is better and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And so with that, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you this, like, do you even want to go on that journey? Like, as we come to an end of the series, like, does the idea of spending a day with Jesus even appeal to you? Because if not, you're going to hate heaven. 
Because in heaven, God's going to be unavoidable. Like my prayer for you, brothers and sisters, my friends, it is that you will realize that Jesus is not just a ticket to get you out of heaven. Like he's the treasure that is worth giving up everything in order to have. The best part about following Jesus is Jesus. And I hope today that your eyes will be open to that reality. I hope that you will realize the reason you're so unfulfilled, the reason that your job's not quite doing it for you or your spouse or your your kids or that boyfriend or that girlfriend or that money or the clothes or the drugs, whatever it is, or the pornography, is because you were made for so much more than that. Like you were made for Christ. And I hope today you'll see that no matter what you've done or have not done, he's standing here today with arms wide open and he would be thrilled to walk with you wherever you are into the next stage of your life with him. And so I'm going to invite our communion servers to come forward. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. And the band can go ahead and come forward. If you've not given your life to Jesus and today you're like, man, I I want to try to learn to walk with him, but I don't know what that looks like. What's the next right step? Come talk with me. I'll be up here in the front. We'll have a prayer team in the back. They'd love to connect with you as well. But if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take a communion. Communion is powerful. It's something that Jesus himself has given us as a tangible reminder of the gospel. And here's the way this works, by the way. If you're here and it's your first time and you're like, I've never seen this happen before. What are we doing? What's going to happen is this. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. You can come forward if you want. We're going to tear off a piece of bread here, which represents the perfect life of Jesus that he lived on your behalf. Good news today. You don't have to be perfect because Jesus was perfect on your behalf. You don't have to be perfect at spending the day with God because Jesus is perfect at spending the day with God on your behalf, right? So we can come today and we can take and say, oh, yes, that's so good. Thank you, Jesus, that you have now given me your righteous, perfect record. So right now where I sit, even if I didn't spend a minute with you, God, this week, you still love me completely and perfectly. And then as it's dipped into the juice You remember that Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to atone for your sins. Jesus did it for you. You're forgiven. And today you get to come and taste that forgiveness. If you want, you can also, uh, there's a self-serve section over here, uh, gluten-free communion. If that that, uh, interests you at all on this little table, you can grab that. And then if you want, as an act of worship, you can give back just a portion of what God has given to you. And so you can see on here, you can text to give, give online, give in person, or you can use the app. With that, let's stand I'll pray for us. We'll take communion, sing a couple more songs, and then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, we greet you again. Father, we greet you, Holy Spirit. We greet you. We thank you for being here in our midst. I pray that you would help us to be present to you. Not just as we take communion and sing these songs, but throughout our day and throughout our lives. Help us to remember that even when we are distracted, even when we are pulled away, that your attention is still on us and that you do have precious thoughts. I pray for the people here today that right now through your Holy Spirit, that they would feel seen by you, known by you, held by you, loved by you 
And if there's anybody here who does not have that personal relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see you as beautiful as you really are. And that they would surrender, they would let go, they would relax in the love that you have for them. And it's in Christ's name I do pray and ask these things. Amen.